Bibles to John chapter 7, verse 37. We'll be looking at verses 37 to 52. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? And so there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Let's pray. It is abundantly apparent how much we need you. As Chad prayed, as we sang, Jesus, you are everything to us. And we need Your grace constantly because we are weak. Jesus, I thank You for everybody who is present here that we might worship You together. And I pray if there is anyone here who is hurting and in pain and discouraged and overwhelmed because of the trials of life, that You would use Your Word to bring satisfaction to their soul and to use them for Your glorious purposes. And I pray if there's anyone here, especially who does not know You, You would use Your Word and draw them. They might have life and have joy in fullness. This is a work, of course, God, that only You can accomplish. So I pray that You would help me to be faithful to Your Word. For Your Word to be made clear. And that through it, we might produce life. 
We ask these things in your name. Amen. So I've recently been reading Grimm's fairy tales to my uh, little boys uh, as we put them down to sleep at night, and it's been a it's been a, a a true encouragement. We've enjoyed reading them, although Isaiah, in particularly in particular, continues to remind me how much he hates Hansel and Gretel, um, and he even mentioned Rumpelstiltskin today too. But not a big fan of those stories. What we've discovered, though, is many of the fairy tales that the Grimm's brothers wrote were actually spiritual allegories, a large portion of them, uh, many paralleling the gospel, in fact. But even if a person doesn't pick up on the gospel imagery in the stories, uh, they're still thoroughly enjoyable stories in and of themselves. And another thing we discovered is in many of the fairy tales, the characters are actually driven by a desire to obtain some coveted treasure. could be magic beans, some animal that produces gold from somewhere, uh, some weapon that can strike down any foe, or actually waters that will cure any malady that a person might have. And the assumption is that if one could just get this magnificent treasure, then everything else in their life would just fall into place. They would be satisfied. And their life at last would have some lasting significance. What is also amazing is that the text that I just read and that we'll look at this afternoon also has such a magnificent offer. And it's not a fairy tale. It's as real, it's as genuine as you or I in this room. And the focus of this passage we'll see, is not so much on this incredible offer that Jesus makes when he stands up in the feast, but really the focus is how the people respond to the offer. He offers them the most incredible opportunity ever. But the response is really off-putting, as we'll see. But I'm despite the fact that most of the text talks about the people's response, I'm compelled to actually spend the majority of our time this afternoon digging into understanding what it is that Jesus actually declares. And in particular, I want to focus on really trying to understand how is it that we today can experience what he's offering. What what does this mean for us now? When he says, come to me, all who thirst and drink, and out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And the reason I want to do this is because until you understand what Jesus is saying, you won't really appreciate the incredulous responses of the people and the Jewish leaders. And if you recall from last week, Where we're at in the Gospel of John is Jesus has made his way down from Galilee to to Jerusalem in order to celebrate the Feast of Booths. Sometimes this feast is also called the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Ingathering. And the feast uh, takes place right around this time of year, in fact. It occurs in late September to mid-October. It begins... um, Five days after the Day of Atonement, also called Yom Kippur. 
And during the feast, people would set up tents or booths or tabernacles made from branches. And they served as a reminder of the time when they were wandering in Egypt and they had to live in tents in the wilderness. And it was actually a feast meant to celebrate as well the ingathering of a harvest that had just taken place in the summer. So they've gathered all of this harvest that God has provided for them. And they also remember how God has provided for them in the past. So they would celebrate God's provision in the past. In particular, this is important to recognize, while they were in the wilderness, you'll recall from when we had studied Exodus a few months ago, how they had been thirsting. In fact, they kind of grumbled and complained because their thirst was so intense. And in order to quench their thirst, Moses struck the rock in the wilderness, and out of that rock flowed water in order to satisfy their thirst. And so as they celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles, they were remembering how God had provided for them in the past. Also how God was continuing to provide for them in the present with the rains that he had brought to bring in the harvest. And also, it served to help them look forward into the future at a time when God's Spirit in the future would be poured out like water, as promised, in the last days. And so in all of this symbolism, all this, the symbolism of water figured significantly, both as they remember the past, celebrated the present, and looked forward to the future. And one commentator described what would take place in these celebrations of the Feast of Tabernacles. Each day, a procession of priests descended to the south border of the city to the Gihon Spring. It's also called the Pool of Siloam. And there, a, pe- a priest would fill a golden pitcher as a choir would chant Isaiah 12:3, which says, With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And then the water was carried back up to the hill to the water gate, followed by crowds who were carry a lulab in their right hand, which were tree branches, which reminded them of the, the booths that they would make, the tents they would make out of these branches. And in the other hand, they would have an ethrog, which were citrus branches, reminiscent of the harvest that they had just brought in. And so the crowd would shake these and sing Psalms 113 to 118. And when the the procession arrived at the temple, the priest would climb the altar steps and pour out the water onto the altar while the crowd circled him and continued to sing. And on the seventh day of the festival, the same procession would take place seven times. And so it's on this final day of the feast, most likely during the end of that seventh processional on that last day that Jesus cries out and declares that in fact all of this symbolism with the water was actually pointing to him. All that they were remembering, all that they were looking forward to, all that they were celebrating was pointing to him and what he would provide, which is why he cries out, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, there's a lot to unpack here as we seek to understand what he's referring to. And to do so, I actually want to take us on a journey going back to 
creation, in fact, and looking, taking a journey through the Scripture up until the end of Scripture, the close in the book of Revelation, to see how God develops this theme of water and His presence in Scripture. And so as I do this, I want you guys to try and identify what does this water symbolize? What are the two purposes of these rivers of living water throughout Scripture? So as you know, after creation, God dwelt with man in the Garden of Eden. And as we look at Genesis chapter 2, we see a very interesting emphasis on an unnamed river that flows out of the garden, and then it separates into four different parts in order to water the surrounding nations, the surrounding lands outside the garden. And that's about all we have there. Jump forward to the book of Exodus, to the time of the Israelites who were wandering in the wilderness. And again, we remember how God provided for them out of the rock in the wilderness. And it was at that time they dwelt in tabernacles. It's also when God himself began to dwell with people. And how did he dwell with them? In a tabernacle. Which in many ways was actually a replica of the Garden of Eden, if you recall. The tabernacle then became the place where God could abide with his people again. And likewise, so that Israel... As God abides with them, Israel would become a light to the nations and nations would be drawn to worship the God of Israel as they saw how great their God was. God would dwell with them, God would provide for them, and the surrounding nations would be drawn to him. The tabernacle was eventually supplanted by the temple which Solomon built. And it was designed to actually be a permanent place for God to live with his people. And as you recall, as God was there, it was built so that through it, the nations would be drawn to Israel and to Israel's God, which you have illustrated in the Queen of Sheba's visit with Solomon. Then when Jesus comes to earth, he himself declares that he is the temple. We saw that earlier in John. He's also called Emmanuel, God with us. And then later, after Christ ascends to be with the Father, we're informed by Paul that now the church has become the body of Christ or the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit dwells within us. We'll consider a little bit more of this a bit later. Jump ahead now into the future where the prophets foretell that after Christ returns, there is yet going to be another temple that will be functional while he physically reigns upon the earth. And we have this very lengthy description of it given to us in the last portion of the book of Ezekiel. But I want to particularly focus on chapter 47. So go ahead, if you have the opportunity, flip to Ezekiel chapter 47, where he describes a river that's flowing out of this millennial temple. And I pick it up in verse 7. Ezekiel writes, As I went back, I saw on the bank of the river very many trees on the one side and on the other. And he said to me, This water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah and then enters the sea. 
And when the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. And wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live. And there will be very many fish. For this water goes there, that the waters of the sea may become fresh. So everything will live where the river goes. Fishermen will stand beside the sea, from Engedi to Iglam. It will be a place for the spreading of nets. Its fish will be of very many kinds, like the fish of the great sea. But its swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They are, left, they are to be left for salt. And on the banks on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every morning, because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. So as this river flows out from this millennial temple, as it flows into the nations, it brings life to wherever it goes. And these nations are healed. Now consider another river described for us in Scripture, whose source is not a temple, but it's the throne of God himself. And its description also happens to be the very last words of Revelation ever spoken. So if you would flip to Revelation chapter 22, consider these final words of Revelation. Verse 17. Let's just start with, uh, even initially, verse, uh, verse 1, and then we'll go to 17. Verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And now jump to verse 17, how Revelation ends with these last words. The Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty, Come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. These are the final words of Revelation. But as we all know, that's not the first time they're ever mentioned. The first time they're mentioned, we read earlier in Isaiah chapter 55. And I won't read it all to you again, but I would like to highlight what it emphasizes. In verse 2, as you have this appeal to come to the waters, you then have... Isaiah saying, why do you spend your money for that which isn't bread? Why do you labor for that which doesn't satisfy? Listen diligent to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. And then just a few verses later, he says, Behold, you shall call a nation you do not know. A nation that, you do not, that does not know you shall run to you. Because of the Lord your God, he has glorified you. 
So what are the two things in all of scriptures? We see this imagery. What are the two purposes of this water? Satisfaction of the soul and the healing of the nations. So what is Jesus offering when he says in John 7, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. His point is that if you come to Jesus, he will both satisfy your soul so that you would never thirst again and give your life eternal significance by using you to bring about the restoration of his fallen world. That's what he's offering. Now, when he makes this statement and he says, as the scripture is said, he's not referring to a singular scripture. He's doing what I just did. He's looking back at, at the summary of what scripture has said about these healing waters, these living waters that flow from him out to the nations. And he says, this is what it's referring to. It's referring to me. He summarized these truths. And remember, remember who he's speaking to. So going back to his time period, as Jesus cries out and he says, come to me all who thirst, he's speaking to those who will eventually become part of the church. The body of Christ, they will actually be indwelt by the Holy Spirit, as he explains just in the next verse. When it's their own hearts, it is out of the Christian's own heart that these rivers of living water will flow for the healing of the nations. And the most illuminating passage, I think, on these themes for me has been John 15, where Jesus tells his disciples that he is the vine and the disciples are the branches, using a little bit different imagery. But, but flip ahead to John 15 and notice... These amazing things of what he says about his purposes and his work and how he himself relates to his church. And I think it will give us help in understanding what does that mean for us now? This amazing offer that Jesus presents. So this whole chapter is illuminating, but for the sake of time, I'm just going to read verses 7 through 11. He writes, If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. And by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that now, right now, your joy may be full. So this is what Jesus is offering for us. He says, He will abide with us, dwell with us, like the tabernacle, like the temple. He will dwell in us. And He will use us to bear fruit that will lead to the healing of the nations to bring about the restoration of this corrupt world. 
Look again, actually, if you would, at what he says in verse 16. He says, you didn't choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. That's why I chose you, to bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Then he explains a little bit more. These things I command you so that you would love one another. Part of how they obey. Part of how the fruit develops and abides. So he's going to abide with us. He's going to use us to bear fruit. And he will satisfy our thirsts. Just like the rock in the wilderness. He will satisfy our thirsts. And our joy will be full. But note most importantly, he's not talking as if this is just going to be some future experience, but that joy will result from the present, from the present period of abiding in him and being used by him as we obey his commandments, as we seek to fulfill his purposes. So the question then presented to us is, Is this your experience now? Is your joy full? Is your thirst satisfied? If Christ promises this to all who believe in Him, and I believe, let's be honest, why is that not my constant experience? If this is what Christ promises, why isn't this my constant experience? Because we know He's not lying. Well, I think as I've wrestled through that, I think it's frankly because we don't actually expect such continuous joy to be our experience. Because we don't expect it, we don't pursue it. And in failing to pursue Christ's purposes for us, we fail to experience the joy that He offers by abiding in Him and obeying His command. So let's, let's look at that just a little bit more for our sake, for our joy. My assumption is that anybody who has been saved, truly saved, they have experienced the real and genuine joy of their salvation. When they recognize that despite all that they had done, that Christ took the penalty for them on the cross and that He would forgive them all of their sins, that brought joy. That brought peace. But few, I think, experience what Christ is speaking to in Isaiah 55, John 7, and John 15 on a regular basis. This experience of abiding in Christ, of obeying His commands, and therefore having this fullness of joy. And if I asked a person, where does a Christian find their joy? If I found myself in a place where that was not my present experience. And I were to go to a Christian and say, where does a Christian find joy if it's promised? My guess is that most people would say, the joy comes 
by remembering the truths of the gospel, the truths and the promises of the gospel. Reflecting on what he has done for us. In fact, that is what we have just done in our time of worship. Most of the songs, maybe all of them, were calling us to remember all the great things that God has done for us in the gospel. So this is a great answer. It's the right answer. They would counsel me to meditate on the gospel. Remember the simple and sincere joy of the truth that you realized when you were saved at your conversion. Just as the Israelites remembered the rock in the wilderness. The joy is realized somehow in remembering the past and in hoping for the future. But the question that comes to me well, is, well, what about now? Because Jesus seems to be talking about a present experience. Abide in me. And your joy will be full. Come to me and drink. And out of your heart will flow rivers of living water. So you recognize that the joy Jesus is offering is for the present. Yes, the experience of joy begins at salvation. But it's supposed to go on from there. It's supposed to go on from there and endure as we pursue our designed purpose. As we diligently pursue Christ-likeness in ourselves and as we seek to pursue Christ in one another, loving one another, and bringing about the good news to the lost, that is how we will find our joy. The point being, we're not simply designed to be saved and that, all, and that it's a one-time thing that happens at conversion and then joy just continues because we know if that's not true. But in fact, when we're saved, yes, the joy comes into our life, But the joy continues as we continue to pursue Christ's purposes, as we continue to abide in Him, as we continue to obey. The joy is what results from the obedience. It's not just something that happens as we look back on what happened in the past, as as necessary and as vital as that is. Never forget your foundation. That's why we take the Lord's Supper. Remember how you are saved. Remember what Christ has done for you. But for that joy to continue, it's the result of continuing to obey, continuing to live for what God has saved you for, for His purposes. And as you do that, your joy will be made full. Similar to a person who gets accepted into a prestigious college. Now, hearing that you got accepted to that great university is going to bring you joy. This has been your dream, maybe, since... You were a a young student. But it's just the beginning. Getting in to that school is in fact just going to mean more work. More labor. More difficulty. Because the point of going there is not simply to attend, to be able to wear the t-shirt or the sweatshirt. But it's to graduate. And hopefully with honors. But if a person's goal was simply to enjoy the benefits of getting accepted, they're going to be sorely discouraged the the first day they get their syllabus and they find out what they've been called to do. And all that stuff is just going to seem like a burden because that's not why they signed up. They signed up to get the t-shirt. Not to graduate. But the person who understands why they're there 
understands the goal, understands the purpose, recognize that the syllabus and all of the assignments, all of the curriculum are designed for a purpose. And as they do those assignments, they're accomplishing the purpose for why they're there and they enjoy it. As James says, count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you counter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. The analogy holds true for sports as well. I want to take a moment to give a personal confession. One I'm not proud of, but the reason I chose to pursue high school football was really for two reasons. For the glory of being a football player and to impress girls. And so, honestly, it didn't take me long to realize that I didn't, real, I didn't enjoy the workouts. I didn't enjoy all the practice drills. And frankly, I didn't really care if our team won or lost. And because my purpose in joining the team had nothing to do with winning. I just wanted to be able to wear the jersey like all the other football players. And I remember one game when our coach was yelling and screaming at us at halftime. And he looked around at us and he he said, If anybody here doesn't want to win, just get up and leave. And I thought, man, a tempting offer. (laughs) But I didn't because I didn't want to lose face, right? But I did eventually quit midway through my junior year, because I had no desire to play. I didn't enjoy practice. I didn't enjoy the games. And it was just a lot of extra work. I just wanted the benefits of being on the team. And many people get married just for the benefits, not realizing all the challenges that are going to come with it. Many people get jobs just for the benefits Or join clubs for the benefits. Or they enlist in the military because of the benefits. And what happens when people are motivated by the benefits rather than the ends? When they realize the costs which come from those commitments, what happens? They grumble and they complain. And some do whatever they can to find an excuse to quit. Because that's not what they signed up for. They signed up just to get on the team. Many people come to Christ just because they want the benefits. To them, following Christ's commands for personal holiness and for ministry and for evangelism, just a burden. Which shows that to such a person, they don't really know why they were saved. Christ did not save us just to free us from the wrath of God, though that's true. But He saved us also to empower us to serve Him, to live according to His design, to fulfill His purposes for which He created us. And right now, for us in the church, those purposes mean satisfying our soul as we obey Him and 
to bring the good news to the ends of the earth. That we would obey His commands, that we would seek to build up the rest of the body of Christ, and that we would bring the gospel to the nations. That is why God has saved you. Yes, that's not to say He hasn't saved you just to to save you from the wrath of God. Yes, He's done that. But that's not the only reason. There's so much more to it. So much more to it. That you might fulfill His purposes. And joy is the result of pursuing Christ's purposes. And that joy results from obeying His commands. And what are those commands? Again, it's to love one another. And to pursue Christ's likeness and to preach the gospel. The joy is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Right? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. The point is these fruits are not accomplished by just mere passivity, but they result from active obedience to what He's commanded. Joy in the Christian life is not something that comes as like some existential buzz. As we, if we just pray and wait, that somehow God's just going to infuse us with joy. It comes from obeying Christ's commands. But I think it brings up this question. Joseph, aren't you, aren't you just teaching legalism? To equate believing with obeying Christ's commands? Aren't you diminishing the power of the gospel when you tell people to run after holiness, to run after obedience? A fair question. You might have heard these lines written by the hymnist John Berridge. He writes, Run, John, and work, the law commands, yet finds me neither feet nor hands, but sweeter news the gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. I'll read it again. Run, John, and work the law commands, yet finds me neither feet nor hands. But sweeter news the gospel brings. It bids me fly and lends me wings. Legalism is what is described in the first two lines. Run, John, and work, the law commands. What I'm talking about is what's being described in the last line. It bids me fly. Something that's impossible on your own. It bids me fly greater than running. And it gives me wings to do it. The gospel gives us wings. We're not on our own. That's the joy That's what Jesus is saying. Come to me and drink so that your soul will be satisfied and out of your heart will flow rivers of living water. What's he talking about? What's the next verse? Verse 39. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. The reason we are able to believe 
The reason we are able to obey. The reason we can have confidence that as we obey, real and genuine fruit will result from it is because God Himself will be accomplishing all of it through His power. Not your power, His power. That's why you can believe it. That's why you can have confidence. We're not doing this on our own. We can know just as we are justified by the power of God alone, we might say through grace alone, that we can obey God's commands in the same power of God as well. The obedience comes all from grace. It's all grace. But He gives that grace not for it just to be poured out on the floor and for it to accomplish nothing. He gives the grace in 1 Corinthians 12 and and Romans 12. He gives that charismata, the grace gifts, for the building up of the body of Christ and the reaching of the nations. That's why He gives the grace. It's not just for your own personal satisfaction. Yes, He will do that. He will do that. But you will, be find, you will find the fullness of your satisfaction as you work with Him to accomplish His purposes of ministry as well. So Jesus gives us the Spirit so that we might have our thirst satisfied and be empowered to obey His commands and purposes. And as we obey the Spirit, it will result in the fruit of the Spirit one of which is joy. So what could be better than this magnificent offer? Jesus is declaring at the feast that He will fulfill all of the people's desires and give their life such significance that their impact on the world will echo throughout eternity. He will satisfy all their desires and give them their lives eternal significance. They could be used to accomplish the work of God. What could be greater than this offer? But how do the people respond to it? Look at verse 40. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this is really the prophet. That's a good response. Others said, this is the Christ. It's an even better response. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. So Jesus makes this incredible offer. And the people miss it because they're hung up on his identity and his origins. Now, if I was out driving around Hillsboro on some 100 degree weather day and I, I saw you out running, you were dripping with sweat, and I pulled the car over and I offered to give you some ice cold water to cool your thirst. And if your response to that offer was, you asked, first of all, was that bottled water? And then you inquired about the brand. You started comparing that brand to other brands that you've tried. And then you asked where I bought it. And then 
you walk away. What would I conclude? You weren't really thirsty? Maybe it was you didn't understand what I was offering. Maybe you had your own water and you just wanted to drink that. Or maybe it is you just just didn't trust me. Clearly these people didn't understand what Jesus was offering. Or they just simply didn't want it from Him. But despite their obvious interest in Him, as you see in their dialogue, they clearly miss the point. But it isn't just them, it's the leaders as well. Look at verse 45. The officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees who said to them, Why didn't you bring Him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities of the Pharisees believed in Him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to Him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. So these Officers of the Pharisees are clearly stunned by his words. And it's proven by the fact that they won't follow the clear orders that they were given to arrest him. And they concluded that there must be some mistake. You guys wouldn't want us to arrest this man because he doesn't speak like anybody. But the Pharisees were resolute. Notice how they respond to the officer's appeal. They assume that unless one of their own agrees with them, he must be wrong. And if the crowd listens to him, it's because they're cursed. But it's, what's interesting is even when one of them, one of their own, does suggest that maybe they're misunderstanding him, they quickly shut him down. Right? They shut down Nicodemus. And they shut him down with two ridiculously bad arguments. One which doesn't make any sense. Are you from Galilee too? An ad hominem attack that has no substance. The other argument is actually flat out wrong because both Jonah and Nahum came from Galilee. So they're not even being logical. But they're also not opposed to Jesus for logical reasons. The point is, no matter how clear, how wonderful Jesus' offer is, they simply don't want it. Logic wasn't what kept them from believing. More information about Jesus was not what kept them from believing and receiving Him. What kept them from believing and receiving the living water that would satisfy their soul and give their life genuine significance was that they simply didn't want it. They don't thirst for Jesus' offering. Or at least, they don't want it from Him. They're content to keep pursuing their own desires to try and satisfy their thirst. Despite the fact that we know that doesn't satisfy, sin does not satisfy. They're content to Pursue their 
knowledge of the law, or maybe it's just their own law keeping and to put their confidence in that. When God himself says, I alone am what can offer to you the river of living water. Why would they reject it? They simply don't want it. They don't believe Christ is who he says he is. So how do we conclude? What about you? Do you realize what Jesus is offering? Do you want your soul to be satisfied? Do you want God to come into your life in power and to use you to bring about the healing of the world through the preaching of the Gospel? All you need to do, all, all you need to do is to believe in Jesus. And then, obey Him. Start pursuing the purposes for which He created you for. That's all you need to do. Let's pray. Father, we thirst. Even as those who have been saved and who You promise this magnificent promise to, we thirst. And we know it's not because You don't satisfy. Because even after believing in You, we turn to other broken cisterns to try and quench our thirst. We don't fully seek to obey Your commands. We are often more attracted to sin than accomplishing Your purposes. And Lord, I pray that You would open our eyes. Not, not just so that we might have more joy and have joy to the fullest, though we crave that, but so that we'd actually be useful to You in Your purposes. That you, we, would, we would be a part of bringing You glory in the earth. Because it's Your glory that matters above all things. God, I love my brothers and sisters here. And I pray that You would continue to deepen and open our eyes to the wonderful and magnificent promises of the Gospel. And that such promises would compel us not to passivity, but to an, an intense and confident and powerful life that has no explanation apart from the amazing work of Your Spirit. We want to see You exalted in our midst. For the sake of Your name.